Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, I'm Birad Swain and this is News Laundry podcast. Global Summits. Where are we going? In today's episode, we'll be discussing right to peaceful assembly and association. Why are we discussing it now? Actually, the question should be why has it not been discussed comprehensively till now in Indian media, considering its long shadow? on our democracy, development, and destiny. But there is a new spec too. In May, June, when the Ministry of Home Affairs in the government of India was cancelling 9,000 plus NGO licenses, the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Rights to Freedom of Assembly and Association, Mr. Maina Kai, was exhorting the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights in Geneva and the 193 member countries to wake up to the shrinking spaces of civic engagement and the season of black laws sweeping across countries and continents. We have a fantastic panel today to discuss this issue and how it affects us all and why we should care. In today's episode, we will be discussing the state response to citizens exercising their right to peaceful assembly and association, and why that resulted in the Greenpeace campaigner Priya Pillai being deplaned. We'll examine the constitutional provisions and try and understand if the state is acting legally when its go-to response is false. When does it become legal? When illegal? What is reasonable restriction? And how reasonable and how exactly defined are these restrictions? How widespread is this phenomena of clamping down on our right to assemble and associate? And how does it affect the fundamental nature of our democracies? And in turn, does our diminished democracies also affect the interpretation and exercise of this right? Before I bring in the panelists, please remember, programs like these are possible because of independent media. When corporates pay, corporates' agenda are served. When people pay, your agenda is served. Please support News Laundry. Please support independent media. Help us to keep news free. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Right to Peaceful Assembly and Association stated, public assemblies should be peaceful and lawful until proven otherwise. But are they? Is that how they have been treated till date? Some recent events. Army veterans were manhandled close to August 15th last month. They had gathered at Jantar Mantar to protest against the government dealing one rank, one pension, an electoral promise given to them. FTII students were arrested from their campus and jailed last month in a midnight crackdown by the police. In South Africa, exactly three years ago in 2012, 44 workers were shot dead and 78 were injured. These workers were protesting for higher wages and the incident took place at Platinum Mines in Marikana. In resource-rich Odisha, in the Kalinganagar Tata Steel site, protesting villagers were met with police brutality. Six people died and many more were injured. Not just that, the Indian state has on many occasions dealt with protesters with disproportionate force, be it the Nirbhaya rape protests or the lockdowns at the Maruti Manesar plant. Multilateral institutions like the World Bank, United Nations, NATO and even sports bodies like FIFA and International Olympic Committee have been no different. Their standard response to people's protests smacks of intolerance and high-handedness. To take us through this extremely important issue, we have with us Priya Pillai, senior campaigner Greenpeace, who also bears the badge of honour 
of being deplaned in January this year. Hi Priya, welcome to the show. Hi. Saurav Datta, working on the intersection of law and media and prolific writer in Al Jazeera, Quint, DNA, Scroll and our old news laundry. Hi Saurav. Professor Jagdeep Chokkar, founder member of Association for Democratic Reforms, the non-profit which has shined a light on electoral reforms, campaign finance and mainstream political parties. Welcome Professor Chokkar. Thank you. Mandeep Tiwana, lawyer, head of policy and research, Civicus, the World Alliance of Civil Society, joins us from Johannesburg, South Africa via Skype. Hi Mandeep. Hello Bharat, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. If we do not have someone from the Ministry of Home Affairs today, it is not due to lack of efforts, but because no official or ministry is willing to go on record saying they object to this basic right or its exercise. Before we start the discussion, we are aware of the controversy surrounding Greenpeace India's internal handling of the sexual harassment case, and we understand law and procedures are taking due course. We also agree institutions fighting for global justice should be demonstrating commitment to justice internally, each time and every time. It is a Caesar's wife burden that comes with the territory and needs to be practiced too. But today's episode is on the right to peaceful assembly and association, and we, we shall stick to that. So Priya, starting with you, why were you in Mahan? In two minutes, tell us what were you doing there? What were people doing there? What happened next? How did the state and the corporates respond? And how did it manifest in Delhi? Uh, so, yeah, almost four and a half years ago, I reached Mahan because there was a proposed mine, uh, which was a joint venture of SR and Hindalco, which was actually going to impact livelihoods of communities in more than 54 villages in the Mahan forest, which is part of Singroli, uh, district of Madhya Pradesh in India. And uh, this proposed mine, as I said, would actually displace people and also impact livelihoods of tribal communities. And we, along with the communities, started actually uh, working against the mine, the proposed mine, because the mine had come into being without getting all the requisite clearances. The clearances had come through with, uh, you know, that had come through were obtained fraudulently, you know, by forged documents and all of that. So that actually led to a four and a half year long fight against SR and Hindalco in the region. And of course, because the state government has uh, proposed the mine, the government also came into the picture uh, with MOEF and the tribal affairs and all of that. MOEFB? The Ministry of Environment and Forest as well as the Ministry of Tribal Affairs coming into the picture. Uh, this, this fight which of course ended also had a parallel legal strategy which also went uh, as a challenge to the uh, you know the national green tribunal uh, and a ground fight of the communities in more than 11 villages who were very strongly standing up to save their rights uh, guaranteed under the forest rights act which is a constitutional law to protect their rights in the forest and this was this was the prime reason why uh, which led to the crackdown on greenpeace and also something that uh, led the Ministry of Home Affairs to target me personally because I've been also working very closely uh, in Mahan Sangar Samiti, which is the banner under which the community has organized itself in Mahan. And then you came to Delhi? Anywhere? Uh, yes, I think uh, the whole issue was uh, also because uh, SR 
as we all know, has a registered office uh, in London. And uh, until almost a year ago, it was uh, enlisted in the London Stock Exchange. And because there were huge human rights violations on the ground, you know, in terms of forgery in Gram Sabhas and people being threatened and, you know, uh, all kinds of violations, we were opposing it. And uh, one of the aims was to also go and talk to the UK, uh, you know, uh, uh, an interest group of uh, MPs in UK, UK and basically appraise them about what was the violation that a corporate that was registered in their country coming and doing in Mahan in Madhya Pradesh. But uh, when I reached the airport, of course, the, I, I realized that I was being offloaded and the government had decided that my going to UK and talking against uh, the interests of SR, the economic interest of SR in Madhya Pradesh would uh, according to, you know, basically quoting the government, be anti-national and would be against the economic interests of uh, the country. I still keep wondering why this was made such an issue because I never understand how the economic interests of a corporate based in another country, registered in another other country, becomes the economic interest of India. So what is the status of the, you did challenge that and yeah, you I did. I did of course challenge this whole uh, uh, offload episode with uh, in the court, in the Delhi High Court. And uh, yes, uh, this happened on in January, uh, on the 11th of January and in two and a half months time in March, uh, I had a verdict in my favor. The Delhi High Court basically ruled that uh, going out and speaking about human rights violations or being involved in a ground fight, uh, you know, bringing together community members to stand up for their uh, rights guaranteed by the Constitution does, did not ultimately amount to anti-nationalism. And there was a very clear message from the court. The court said that, uh, you know, in a democracy, you cannot muzzle voices of dissent. You people have the the right to ha to peacefully protest and the right to peacefully uh, you know dissent against policies of the government or laws or uh, any um, executive order and that right has can be exercised by any citizen of this country and that comes well within the right to freedom uh, in this country so mandeep uh, you just heard uh, from priya about what happened with uh, greenpeace and her mahan struggle uh, tell us about uh, Marikana. I understand the Judicial Inquiry Commission report has just come out, and there are g shades of grey on what has uh, the ro what was the role played by the Vice President Cyril Ramaphosa. Also, take the listeners through what happened in Marikana. I think what Priya spoke about is important: is the collusion that is taking place between the political and the economic elite. I mean, it's it's in the larger context of uh, neoliberal economic policies where, that are privileging elite interests over people's interests. And Marikana is another unfortunate incident that happened in South Africa. In, on 16th August 2012, 34 miners were gunned down by police uh, in a pre-planned uh, massacre that, uh, according to several reports. These people were, were arguing for a better wage. They were protesting several days before this incident happened on 16th of August. And the, the mining company, which is Lawnman Mining Company, which is a British company, had actually announced profits of $273 million uh, on, uh, in 2011, the year before the massacre. But it was challenging. It was fighting these uh, miners who were basically arguing for a living wage. And of course, this mining company was very well and it was very well connected. They had uh, 
relationships with senior political leaders, and obviously the police, in this instance, instead of taking the side of the minors, since you know South Africa has its whole history of collective of collective rights and it has a whole history of struggle against exploitative systems of the economy, actually were uh, sided with the uh, with the mining management in in this instance and uh, it's it's a very unfortunate incident but you know this ha- this is, this is happening all over the world i mean we find that in canada they are environmental activists uh-huh. mandip will come mandip will come for the uh, to the uh, global happenings and the international jurisprudence let's bring in the other panelists also uh, professor choker you have been a management guru yourself and you've served 10 years in indian railways and uh, indian institute of management ahmedabad have you before your adr avatar have you ever come across this kind of industrial action and standoff and what was your reaction then and what is your reaction now as the co-lead of adr well <coughs> i had seen industrial action in terms of uh, strikes and other demonstrations when i was in the railways at that time i was on the other side of the the table as a part of the management and situations in which i was personally involved uh then that was about 25 30 years ago it never happened that there was repression uh people would sit on a hunger strike and i'll walk by them four times a day and i'll ask them i hope you're not eating anything and they would say we are not so it was understood that uh protests and dis- dissent and disagreements were normal natural expected and they had to dealt with they had to be dealt with in a civilized way negotiation negotiations discussions something which was not within my control the protesters also knew it was not within my control and we waited for the appropriate people to uh, take their decisions on the matters that were concerned since i came into this activity uh, i have personally not experienced anything like this but i i see it all around and the collusion of the uh, government and the economic forces in the country so to say as which mandeep referred to is obvious uh, we've had a case in which uh, the delhi high court has held that the two leading political parties in the country are guilty of violating the same act that uh, several civil society organizations have been guilty of violating the foreign contribution uh, foreign contribution regulation act and the delhi high court asked the ministry of home affairs which is the uh, administrative body for the fcra to take action within 6 months but nothing happened within 6 months except that one week before 6 months were to be over both the political parties have gone and appealed to the supreme court now had the same order been given by the high court for a civil society organization uh, the ministry of home affairs would have been quite active and keen and a lot would have happened in 6 months but because these are political parties nothing has happened and if you read the tribune uh, in english language delhi in northern india today there's a piece by me on the right to information act being applied to political parties the central information commission the highest statutory body to implement the right to information act held in march of 2013 
that six national political parties are public authorities under the RTI Act. None of the public none of the political parties have bothered to respond to that order, what to talk of implementing in that order. And finally, now we are in the Supreme Court on the same issue. And about a week ago, the Union of India, through the Department of Personnel and Training, submitted an affidavit in the Supreme Court saying that political parties should not be brought under RTI. And the point I make in that article today is that when political parties say that they should not be under the RTI Act, it is one thing. But when the government of the country, says which that, represents right. the country as a whole, yeah. not any particular political, political interest, party, yeah. says that political party should not be under the RTI Act, it is a very different game altogether. So the confusion between political parties and government on the one hand and the government of the country and the nation on the other hand and the parliament of the country and political parties on the other hand these are very subtle and nuanced distinctions which uh, tend to be lost in the in the heat and dust of electoral battles but for people who are governing the country these are very fine distinctions which need to be kept in mind very very carefully I think you are absolutely right, especially for our listeners. The point he's making about if it works for the goose, it should also work for the gander. And rule of law is also about consistency and ap application across sectors and across actors is extremely important. For our listeners, again, FCRA, Foreign Contribution Regulation Act, is the controlling legislation on entities, especially non-profits and even political parties, receiving contributions from abroad. And it has been misinterpreted. It, it has a lot of inexact provisions that Saurav is going to take us through. And it has been misinterpreted and conveniently misinterpreted to most of the time actually harass rather than um, harass and hamper rather than facilitate and help. Saurav. You have been writing about uh, examining the issue of freedom of assembly and association. You've written a brilliant piece in scroll that we will be plugging in this uh, um, episode also. So first thing, tell us about the constitutional status of the right to peaceful assembly and association in India. What are the provisions? Secondly, um, give us a working definition. Give the listeners a working definition of what it means. First of all, there cannot be and there isn't any working definition. Two, it is not only, I mean, the, the legal factors which come into play is not only the constitution, but also the different police acts. I mean, I spoke about the Bombay Police Act there. Even the CRPC, there are certain provisions which the police can invoke. So taken all together, to look at only the constitution saying that, okay, your right to freedom of assembly is guaranteed, provided certain, you know, I mean, you have not breached any reasonable limit. But that's not how the system works. It is the power of the police, and the power of the police, which is very broad, which is very sweeping. And this has been continuing since the British era. In fact, if I look at the most draconian provision in the, one of the most draconian provisions in the Bombay Police Act, Section 37 which says the police commissioner can decide whether to grant permission for a rally or not. The root of this provision lies in 1902, 
when there were series of riots in Bombay, there were some uh, communal riots and there were also riots about the plague, you know, people kind of totally resented and all. So there was the police commissioner called Edwards. He said that we need to effectively control, regulate and govern the practice of how the natives are allowed to gather together, how they are allowed to protest and all. And it has been continuing since then. The terms which are very vague is, okay, that term, this term I think, you know, I'm forgetting the exact word, but which basically means that if you are protesting, you can be deemed an unlawful assembly. So five or more people yes. with the common intention, huh, the term, uh, I think section 114, there's some provision in the CIPCB says that if your intention is to overawe the government, now, what do you mean by overawe the government? The government is not a baby in diapers that, you know, <laughs> five people or 50 people gathering together with placards and flags and all. Your, your sheer presence overawes me, Sarah. No, no, no. No, but, but, but that's how it works. So then the police commissioner can declare the uh, assembly unlawful. So too much of discretionary powers and too much, too of, much vague, of discretionary powers. Right? And once, terms for interpretation. Yeah. This, uh, the fact that the area around parliament and uh, around India Gate and all is constantly under perpetual lock lockdown, prohibition, yeah. lockdown or blockade, is that, is that legal? See, there's no specific legal provision. But okay, security, I know that India, the Indian government and the Indian state is hyper paranoid about security, but security remains a valid concern. And there are cases of people, you know, maybe up to different kinds of mischief. But the way they want to stop protest there, do not look at parliament, look at Jantar Mantar. Mm -hmm. And not only Delhi. I mean, I have a problem that, you know, when you're talking about freedom of assembly, etc., it inevitably and very unfortunately gets kind of confined to Delhi. But look at other states. I mean, if you look at Bombay, which has a history of protests, and protests, and uh, sorry, Professor Choker, you are saying that... Uh, you might be personally unaware of, you know, crackdowns on protests, but if you look at the mill strikes in Bombay, Calcutta, etc., the repression ha was brutal and very rapid. I think the point... From I the said I have not been personally yeah, involved. Yeah, personally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what. I was not part of a situation where there was repression going on, either on me or in my presence on somebody else. I have certainly been aware of that, totally. But if I can just also weigh in into this conversation, I also feel that uh, we've almost become immune and brutalized to repress repressive reaction to uh, current protests. Earlier it was not the normal, now it is the new normal. As we might have become inured, but we haven't become immune. Great. I think that's a good thing if you're not immune. and if you're No, we are not reacting. immune because, I mean, till some days ago, the day before Yakub was to be hanged, there was a protest which was organized in Bombay. Now, outside Dadar station, every time, I mean, every second day, there are people assembling for different causes. Workers' rights, Dalit rights, protests against different kind of atrocities and all. We used to do that. We never took permission because we knew that if, I take, if, if we apply for permission, it would never ever be granted. So we used to peacefully stand there for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, shout slogans. There used to be a police van. Policemen used to line up there. Just to silently watch. Maybe once or twice used to come and mutter that, you know, please keep your voices down, clear the way for commuters because there's a very busy junction. But the, nobody was arrested, nobody was detained. The day the, the protest was organized for Yakub, 
I mean, against his hanging, right? And that day, there were senior lawyers and activists, well-known lawyers of Bombay, and who have been crusading for democratic rights for a long, long time. Even before they started to speak, the police just swooped upon them and took them to Matunga police station. So, so what happens is because of the discretion, the government gets to choose which cause it will allow to be agitated, which cause it will not allow to be agitated. So even the repression and the excessive force is cherry-picked? The causes are cherry-picked. Can you list a few restrictions? Because we are also told that it, this is actually a very good reason where there's a continuum on restrictions on freedom of speech, restrictions on freedom of assembly and association. Practically all of them are inexactly defined and practically all of them are vulnerable to discretionary interpretation and cherry picking, like you said. Uh, but is there, a, is there a standard list that some lay people know that you know, these are the things on which we will be restricted from peaceful assembly and there association? Is no I mean, there is no standard list because causes are coming up. I'm, okay, causes are coming up. Causes like overall, state being overawed. That's a list now we know. That's, that's something we know. No, no, no. Causes keep coming up. Causes are also invented and even concocted. Right? So there cannot be a list which people can know that if I protest against this, there would not be a government crackdown or they would not uh, deny permission. But generally, the overall it is, if you protest against attacks on minorities, if you protest against government's economic policies, and it used to be uh, earlier also, but now it has taken on very heightened proportions. And if you protest against, let's say, police atrocities mm -hmm. or police unlawfulness, vigilant, different kind of religious vigilantism, even parochial vigilantism, you will inevitably end up, you know, facing a crackdown. No, I, I think I may be wrong. He is obviously the legal expert. But I think the Constitution says five or six things under which the freedom of expression assembly. can be yeah. curbed. You that know. is freedom of expression and freedom of assembly is again a different right. Mm. And in okay. fact, since you brought this up, there was a case in 1967 in Gujarat High Court. And that time, uh, Gujarat uh, was also governed by the Bombay Police Act. And many provisions of the Bombay Police Act are still now applicable to Gujarat. There was this guy called Himmatlal Shah. They were denied permission for a rally because the police commissioner decided that it will be unlawful, so permission was denied. He went to court, and the very interesting thing is the two judges who were there deciding the matter, one was Justice Bhagwati, who is sometimes called, though I totally disagree with that as the kind of you know, champion of human rights, because Bhagwati's past was so murky, it is a kind of you know, atonement for his sins. The other was D.A. Desai. If you look at D.A. Desai, he was a very progressive judge. And when you look at the, when he came to the Supreme Court, he and Krishna Ayer, they gave the best judgments for labor rights, for workers, for the poor. I mean, D.A. Desai and Ayer were also called communist judges. Their judgments were so radical. Right. Now, Justice Desai was so writing the for our listeners, Harry Landau of the Harvard University has written a fantastic paper in 2012 in the Harvard Law Journal where he's actually examining the role of judiciary in accessing progressive rights. And 
we will be plugging that as part of the explainer series in this episode also. We'll provide the link, but you might want to also follow this particular discussion of what Saurav just said about the role of judiciary and the achievement of progressive <coughs> rights. Yes. Yeah. Now, so Justice Desai drew a distinction between the freedom of speech and prior restraint. Because freedom, if I'm a newspaper, you cannot sit in judgment and decide that, okay, only this will be published. That is not allowed. But prior restraint or something similar with regard to freedom of assembly, he said that it is legally justified. Because sometimes and often situations do go out of hand. So when I talk about freedom of assembly here, we have to see it in a different context. I mean, my thing has always been this, that there are police laws and police actions. So there has to be some kind of you know, reasonable curbing down on the part of the police and which also acts at the behest of the state government. I think it, it, it uh, connects very well to what the United Nations Special Rapporteur. And for our listeners, again, a Special Rapporteur is an independent expert appointed by the United Nations to report on the status of one particular right across the 193 countries. And for our listeners, again, during the time when India was doing some of the best things around the right to food, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Right to Food, Dr. Olivia D. Shooter, was denied permission to come on a mission, not once, but across the two terms that he served in the UN. So the current United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Assembly and Association, Mr. Maina Kai, who is also a champion and a very good friend, uh, says what I think Saurav says, that every assembly should be de facto interpreted as peaceful and lawful unless proven otherwise. So a priori, you should not be imposing restrictions. I guess that's the sort of Also a distinction could be drawn between approach. peaceful and unlawful mm. or lawful. I mean, something might not be peaceful because, okay, if I'm in favor of being, let's say, okay, since you're from Greenpeace, Greenpeace's movements have been kind of quite agitationist, right? I mean, kind of briskling, yeah. yeah? They will yeah. climb aboard a ship, yes. they will get a ship grounded. Stunts, fantastic stunts. Stunts, okay, yes. yes. Stunts. Starting from the Rainbow Warrior yeah. case. Stunts. But it might not be peaceful because, you know, it is very, it is very subjective. Disruptive. But how do you, and, and things have to be disruptive. You cannot yeah. always sit yeah. like, you know, with your mouth taped yeah. like some yeah. Gandhians in a rally and expect, you know, the radical change to come about. No, I, I just kind of uh, want to just uh, amend that a little. I think it's peaceful. What it is not is it, it may be unlawful. Like, for example, when you're actually going and protesting uh, against a corporate, when we went in and protested against SR in Mumbai, we, yes, we did trespass, you know, which may be unlawful. But uh, the fact that we trespassed, uh, does not make us, uh, you know, violent. You know, the fact that we, we are protesting does not make us, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, take away the peace element from us, you know. You may do certain acts, like for example, when you say that you're not supposed to go and light a candle in the India Gate, uh, you know, which happened when we were actually having a very silent, peaceful protest against the massacre of children in Pakistan. And we just were, we were just lighting candles in India Gate. And uh, we got arrested for that, you know, and we were taken to the Parliament Street Police Station. So. For me, the way I look at it, it's peaceful. It may be unlawful because you declared a 144 in that area. Yes. You yeah. know? So, and you are saying that we breached it. So, uh, 
yes there may be certain laws you know that 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 may be violated in civil disobedience but every law that's violated does not make it you know um and uh, you know violent that is my that is my and uh, not every know? law is benign either exactly. not number and not one not every exactly. law is even reasonable yeah reasonable yes. yeah absolutely exactly. well there are <laughs> a couple of observations here number one every law is not reasonable i think you are absolutely right but every law is supposed to be or expected to be sensible <laughs> which is i sort of forcefully says supposed to be That's a the litmus to be. test yeah but i am i'm sort of reminded based on what priya said of you know we hear politicians saying it all the time that what this person has done may be immoral but it is not illegal right what priya is saying is that it may be illegal but it is not immoral yes now this distinction the letter of the law cannot make this is a discretionary distinction which is made when the law is interpreted by a judicial mind hopefully which doesn't always work out the way you know one may expect but you know the 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 difference is you observe the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law Absolutely, or yeah. you observe the spirit of the law and once in a while tweak the letter of the law in fact before for the, for our listeners before we started uh, conceiving this particular program i am no great fan of greenpeace myself but my favorite public stunt of greenpeace is when the asian development bank annual general meeting was happening in 2006 in hyderabad they climbed up the hussein sagar uh, lake uh, lord buddha statue and unfurled a extremely huge banner with adb stop coke because adb was uh, financing a lot of uh, uh, coal based plants in uh, southeast asia which was uh, uh, contributing to the carbon footprint and pollutions and everything having said that i think one of the discussion that uh, uh, all of us sort of agree on is that a the uh, the legislations themselves being moral immoral or borderline and sometimes extremely restrictive but b the amount of regression with which they are interpreted and implemented most of the time and see whenever there are powerful involved the reluctant regulation that creeps in so um, a lot of times i use this line so i completely a uh, full disclosure this is not a panelist line so if at all uh, there's any legal action to be taken it should be against me that we are a toxic cocktail of progressive legislation regressive Uh, implementation and reluctant regulation and we, i think a lot of us especially legal researchers like sorov have been looking for cases to see that this toxic cocktail is broken over and over again so mandeep you just heard this interesting conversation uh, you've been watching the global scenario how important and how often is this right to peaceful assembly and association violated what is the global status check right now and secondly how important is it for civicus as an organization committed to the uh, world alliance for citizenship and civic action how how important is it for you um, take us through that sure <coughs> so biraj we've just completed a report called the civil society watch report where we've documented substantial threats to the freedoms of expression association peaceful assembly which we call the core civic freedoms in 96 countries 
Some of these countries are, of course, authoritarian countries, you know, which are at one end of the spectrum. You are North Korea's, you are Eritrea's, and so on. But several of them are actually democratic countries. You know, countries like Canada, countries like um, like Brazil, countries like India, of course, are figuring in there. And the the challenge with these threats to civil society is that they are pervasive, and and they are happening in all sorts of uh, political systems. So on one hand, we can say that we have democracy in form in across the world, but democracy in substance is not being practiced uh, very much in, in in many different parts of the world. And there are different reasons for this. One reason is, of course, is this global obsession with security. You know, after 9/11, of course, many democracies lowered their standards as far as civil liberties were concerned. But after the Arab Spring, what's happened? Is Several authoritarian leaders have gotten very scared of the power of civil society to bring about political change, and they have started to hit back at civil society activists, calling them anti-national and so on. The second point, I think, which we discussed very clearly today was this collusion between political and economic elite, where there's a tight overlap. You know, in almost every country of the world, we find politicians with extensive business interests, and we find businessmen who are joining politics to protect their business interests. And they are rigging the rules of the game. So land rights activists, environmental activists, indigenous people's rights activists, they are being attacked. They are being used all sorts of names, foreign agents, uh, uh, working uh, the for, uh, against the interests of the national discourse and so on uh, by, by, this collusion, by this overlap and collusion between political and economic elite. Or my current favorite, as Saurav said, overawing the state. I mean, nothing can be more superfluous than that. Yeah, please go ahead. So the third big issue that, that we are fighting, finding where threats to civil society are happening is this rise in religious fundamentalism, ideological extremism, and which is a big challenge. And I think that goes back to the fact that there are certain pressing political problems they are polit which, to which the international community has failed to find solutions. And, and also because of this so-called global war on terror, it is, you know, people are taking very extremist positions on many different sides. And that's creating another big challenge where civil society activists that promote peace, that promote tolerance in society, that promote better relations between different communities are now being attacked by religious fundamentalist groups in many parts of the world. Thank you, Mandeep. Um do you uh, do you remember how, uh, in the civil society this civil society report that you just mentioned? Are, are you rating and ranking? Is there a league table for the 94 countries, and where does India feature? We are we are not in the process. We are not rating and ranking them at the moment, but we will be doing this over the course of next year. In fact, we have a project called the Civil Society Monitor. By 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 the end of next year, we will be able to. Uh, to rate countries according to five different dimensions uh, on, on that. So um, for the panelists over here and for our listeners, um, as we said in our uh, introductory plug, Maina Kai, the United Nations Special Rapporteur, has also talked about how the m multilateral institutions from the World Bank to the sporting bodies like FIFA and International Olympic Committee have also been equally regressive in dealing with freedom of assembly and association, even the United Nations for that matter. 
what is the kind of shadow when 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 we look at these bodies we look at them as global benchmark of best practices and for country governments to actually adapt those benchmarks so when they themselves start diluting and going regressive uh, cold turkey what is the kind of uh, um, uh, negative um, inspiration does that give to state country uh, states and nation states and country governments priya do you want to say that since you stepped in when we were doing that plug yeah i think uh, it's always been the case if you look at world bank especially you know that's how they've been always i don't see any time point in time when you know when the world bank has been very you know progressive and uh, has been you know welcoming protests and all of that all that the world bank has in terms of handling protests uh, was to have a re internal redressal uh, forum you know or a system within the bank you know and again we've seen right from you know we've seen a lot of fights at least in the region where i work uh, you know initially world bank had put in a lot of money in coal mining and most of the fights uh, way back uh, you know in in the 3 4 decades uh, ago you'd find that most of the coal fights were funded uh, you know were against the world bank and the world bank funding you know pr uh, coal projects in the country and in that system you've seen how uh, you know whether it's been against dams or mines or uh, other forms they they i don't see any space that was ever there where uh, you know which was progressive or which was welcoming to negotiate or you know to sit across the table and talk all that the space that was available was the redressal forum within the bank which is like uh, which is like you know uh, which is strange for me because for me i would never approach the redressal forum within the bank because you know you can't go and talk to the you know to the redressal forum in the bank against the excesses of the bank so uh, i don't see how we can you know even equate uh, you know how a country should even look at these organizations as a benchmark uh, for any form of uh, you know a democratic space or engagement in the first place mm -hmm. professor choker well <coughs> i have serious doubts if any of these uh, multilateral bodies including the sports associations can be the the benchmark far from it we've just seen what happened happened in fifa, FIFA yeah. and i don't need to say about it i am sure all your listeners know that secondly the the so called global financial community greece is going to have elections again because the global financial community which is the fountainhead of capitalism does not like uh, grassroots democracy to take hold in in greece and then uh, hopefully in spain or wherever you know there is a fundamental tension between capitalism and democracy capitalism is the rule of money rule of capital democracy is the rule of the people by definition money and capital cannot be you know uh, democratized when everybody has the same amount of money that objective is the antithesis of capitalism therefore a lot of capitalist countries say that democracy is the greatest thing to do and we we follow it but the fact is there is a fundamental tension here and uh, world bank can never be democratic by definition so therefore to expect that these so called multilateral agencies which also have their own internal uh, agendas and politics and power uh, blocks uh, they cannot be democratic and they cannot be 
benchmarks uh, for uh, aspiring democracies. I think aspiring democracies will have to find their own way and it will be a huge struggle. And I am obviously no, no fan or uh, follower of uh, communism. I am not. Yes. But the fact is uh, capitalism, the triumph of uh, which is being touted ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, is not the best thing to happen to this world. Democracy either. Yeah. So, no, to the world. Yeah, to the uh, world. So yeah. I think the world cannot survive in the long run in a healthy state with capitalism ruling the roost. There has to be a, a, a force against it. And not that capitalism will ever be rooted out or socialism will be rooted out. These will stay. But the continuous tension will remain and adequate... Uh, force against capitalism is required in the in the world as a whole, and these f sports bodies and uh, World Bank and so on are the antithesis of democracy. Um, for our listeners, a shameless plug: in our first episode was actually about the finance third international conference on financing for development, and we did have a business journalist who is definitely not echo would not echo uh, Professor Jagdeep Chokar, but there was actually an agreement again in that episode about how Financing for Development Summit has been a letdown because the structural reasons around global finance and how democracy gets trumped down by capital was a major concern. And the fact that Greece did not cast a long shadow on the Financing for Development was a major concern also, um, sort of. I would like to seconds, address uh, Priya's and Professor Chokas. Yeah, because I think it, it got somehow remained incomplete. Yeah. Peaceful protest yeah. and unlawful assembly, we need to look at two methods separately. Yeah. Even if the police or the government knows, and the police and the government, they know, right. that a uh, protest will be peaceful, they can still, depending upon which causes they want to oppose and which causes they want to espouse, they can have it declared as unlawful. Mm. Take the example of Kudan Kulam, mm. right? Or the Jaitapur protest in Maharashtra. So for our listeners, these two are people's protest against nuclear plants in their backyard that without yes. adequate safeguards. Yeah, so for the Jaitapur protest, two retired Bombay High Court judges, and one of them was a Supreme, retired Supreme Court judge. They were arrested because they had just violated the curfew orders. So if the state can go down to that level, what we need to challenge is that why should there be a provision to declare an assembly unlawful? Because, again, this has come back from a very panic-driven stage. If you see in 1886 in London, there were the Trafalgar Square riots. Right. And, and it created a big and a very vociferous demand that you know, we need to have kind of a panic-stricken legislations to control, to curb, to clamp down. And there was a quote, there was something called the Pall Mall Gazette, and it was in some February issue. They said that sitting on a safety valve is not the best way to contain an explosion. So if you are being driven by panic, so, and if that is being enshrined in the law, and what is enshrined in the law is being allowed to be used with impunity, in the most arbitrary manner by the executive, the police and the government, yes. you need to challenge that. It is not about the method, Priya, as you said. And you also mentioned something about trespassing. There's a very interesting development which has taken place with regard to capitalism and government. 
the police has been privatized. I think it was in 2010. Yeah. In 2010, the CISF Act was amended to say that the CISF could guard private uh, property also. So if I'm a capitalist, if I, if I own a factory, it can, uh, it can guard that also. Now, if you see, there are cases and you can find videos on YouTube. Hmm? People are marching on. I think there was this protest by the Bhopal gas survivors. Yeah? They are marching on and they are at the, uh, at the factory's gate. The, after a while, the after a while, after a while, you find that the people who are coming back are all bloodied and beaten and all. Now see, if protest turns violent, it becomes a law and order issue. Hmm? Law and order in the hands of the police, correct? Here you have kind of exported or outsourced law yes. and order control, a very yes. policing function yes. to the CISF for the sake of guarding private property. Yes. So there's a problem. So now, if there's a if there's an illegal or severely harsh lati charge, mm -hmm. I can file a red petition against the police in right. the High Court, correct? What happens to the CISF people who are at the behest of or who are on the orders of the company management actually crack down and use force? Right. That's what not really police in What we just heard from Mandeep about the lawn min mines in yeah. Marikana. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Margaret yeah. Thatcher. Absolutely, Thatcherite also. So for our listeners, um, on the, um, on the uh, Bhopal gas tragedy, that is supposed to be the biggest industrial accident in the entire it's world. Not, it's not an accident. It's not an accident. It's no, it's, it's not an accident. Yes, it's not an accident. I stand corrected. It's actually the biggest industrial disaster completely caused by the powers that be, their cost-cutting mechanism and their absolute impunity and not caring for the lives and uh, resulting in almost 25,000 people dying, even survivors. The, the exact medical um, counting of uh, the forensics and the medical uh, epidemiology counting of how many exactly died and its continuing effects is still a work in progress. But it, every year it has uh, marked, the anniversary has been marked by people taking out peaceful marches and protests and more or less the, the standard practice state response, as Saurav said, has been a powder keg or safety valve response of excessive forces and panic attack. Um, Mandeep, has there, yes. been a, has there been a spike or slip in, um, I think around this table back in Delhi, everybody seems to be saying there's been a spike in this panic attack, safety valve, powder keg reaction. What is your, uh, what does your research and the global um, scenario say? Is, is, is it how bad it is across the world? As I mentioned, I mean, th there have been attacks on civil society in 96 countries. So definitely the situation is quite, is quite uh, serious. And I think uh, what's been said earlier is that our international institutions have, you know, are be have been made to serve elite interests and, uh, and 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 that's what is uh, a big challenge because we are seeing increasing role of the private sector in in international development also, and uh, that is why our international institutions are not serving the people they are supposed to serve, and uh, they are uh, and they are being driven by uh, the the powerful and the wealthy, and that's something we really need to change. I think we need to wrap it up now. So Priya, in one sentence or in one minute. Can you tell us how does this affect our democracy, the nature changing nature of our democracy, and what is what is it that you would like citizens to do? Your your communities in Mahan also. Uh, I think uh, this definitely 
uh, affects our uh, the fiber of our democracy and like as an activist as somebody who's been working on the ground with communities i think uh, this there's no going back from protests the, the only way forward is to is to strongly protest is to strongly dissent and uh, and do it publicly and make it more and more forceful because the the whole issue is about reclaiming back your democracy which i think is 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 the, the sole responsibility of every citizen of this country as well as communities whose rights are being violated because there's a strong very strong nexus currently with between the government and the corporate and uh, as 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 we've been hearing how the police is being used in this nexus to clamp down on any form of dissent or assembly or association and this needs to be the reaction to this has to be a mass huge movement uh, which is forceful which is which is strong enough so for our listeners news laundry stands for reclaiming journalism as a public service and med media as a public good i think it really calls for a much more comprehensive discussion about what is a essential non-negotiable public good other than journalism law and order vaccination research public health there are many i am not sure if we have a episode dedicated to that but this is a theme that will be visiting practically in every episode and we would also encourage you again repeating ravish kumar from ndtv india consuming news is also about educating engaging and informing please start thinking about what is a non negotiable public good that you would not want handed over to the private sector professor chokkar you've been shining a light on democracy and democratic reforms a lot of us do take inspiration from that how do you think restrictions on this right and um shrinking of civic spaces is affecting the nature of our democracy and what can we do as citizens <coughs> you see democracy is all about participation if there are restrictions on participation and demonstration and speech obviously you can't participate so that itself is a negation of democracy in a way uh on the question of what can citizens do i mean the answer is everything first of all democracy this is a cliche to say that but i still like to democracy is a journey it's not a destination it will never happen that democracy has arrived 100% now we can take it easy <coughs> and i can only quote from <coughs> a us supreme court judge felix frankfurter when he wrote no job in the land is more important than that of being a citizen every citizen at every point in time in her or his life has to think about what is his or her responsibility to society to the nation to democracy and if we perform our duties as citizens we wouldn't be discussing this the tragedy is that a lot of us take democracy for granted so a lot of us don't even think of voting a lot of us vote not keeping the interest of the nation or society at heart those are the that is the kind of apathy where we assume democracy is there for good the clean air is there for good now of course there is a revelation amongst people that clean air may not be available for good democracy may also not be available for good if we don't take care of it and democracy has to be cared for on a continual basis by every citizen every moment of their lives and it will fortunately and fortunately will continue forever democracy has to be continuously nurtured like a plant 
it has to be watered every day pruned every day put into shade or sun every day that is what democracy is mandeep last I, last I words think, uh, i would agree with what the what, what the other panelists have said and uh, I think it's up to citizens to be vigilant about their rights, and and people are starting to organize in several spaces around the world. You know, we had the anti-corruption protests in India. We've had protests in Brazil against corruption again, and or, or against privatization of public services. You've had the anti-austerity protests in Europe. We've had the Occupy movements, of course, in the United States. So people are organizing in several different ways, and and some of these movements are also starting to assume political power and rethink. The, the the politics that have been established uh, of the established political parties so i'm i'm quite hopeful about the future uh, there's a lot of young people who are very concerned about the future who are very concerned about the lack of opportunities and how they are being denied this by established sections of society so they will come forward and uh, we will, but we will see a radical transformation in democracy as we know it in the next few in the next couple of decades i'm very sure about that so the final word to actually w- the youngest panelist yes, in today's episode and probably the most erudite one see continued dissent and consi- uh, continued agitation both in court and on the streets to get those you know structural loopholes so the structural blocks the laws overhauled there are many structural walls in the laws so you to continuously go on criticizing them dissecting them raging against them to dismantle them so that's what we heard from my fantastic panel over here from attacks on press freedoms to attack on workers farmers and peaceful protesters it has been a season of restrictions a season of bans a season of black laws our current episode was an attempt to understand if it was dark times and understand the extent of darkness and give the hope because as faiz sahib faiz ahmed faiz summarized it for all times बोल कि लब आज़ाद हैं तेरे कि जुबान अब तक तेरी है एंड आई थिंक आई कैन ऑल्सो स्टील अ लाइन फ्रॉम प्रोफेसर चोकर प्रॉबली दस नो बिगर जॉब इन द वर्ल्ड दैन बींग ए सिटीजन ऑन दैट नोट थैंक यू फॉर लिसनिंग टू न्यूज लॉन्ड्री पॉडकास्ट ग्लोबल समिट्स वेर आर बी गोइंग वी वुड लाइक टू थैंक आर कोलेबरेटर्स सेफ द चिल्ड्रेन इंडिया द लीडिंग नॉन प्रॉफिट डेडिकेटेड टू चिल्ड्रेन फॉर दर सपोर्ट इन ब्रिंगिंग दिस प्रोग्राम टू यू This is part of their global campaign Action 2015 to build public awareness and pressure on world leaders for a just global deal for just future for all. This episode was produced by Karthik Nijhavan of Team News Laundry. In the next episode we'll be discussing the big summit Sustainable Development Goals and Post 2015 and take stock of the last 15 years of international development kya khoya kya paya. Please stay tuned. We would love to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please support independent media so you can decide where we going. This is Biraj Swain signing off for News Laundry. Catch all new episodes of Global Summits Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.